This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars that is German for Are You Not Entertained? Are you not entertained, Rob Zachney? I am extremely entertained. Like, uh, I think we called it, I think Danny and I confidently predicted this would be uh, the best F1 race of the year, if not uh, of the last few years. The uh, Oster- Osterreich ring, uh, the Red Bull ring, Always host two memorable, unforgettable races. Uh, we love it. You love it. No surprises here, really. Uh, certainly not. One surprise, Danny O'Dwyer, not uh, on the podcast today. He is uh, on assignment. Uh, I am here. Rob Zachney is here. I'm Drew Scanlon. That's Rob Zachney. And we're about to talk about, boy, you're right. I think I think probably the best race. of the, I, Bahrain was really good. There's a little bit of a dip there. But I think... Uh, this I can confidently say is my favorite race uh, of the year. Um, but the craziness started back in practice. Uh, Botas crashed, Verstappen crashed, Vettel spun and almost crashed, all in free practice too. I think they were blaming the wind a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of elevation changes. So there's places where your car is going to be basically shielded and then you're going to suddenly emerge into a stiff breeze. Uh, also, Valtteri was commenting on just, this is not a very forgiving track. Uh, this is a track where you're carrying a pretty high rate of cornering speed. If you get it a little bit wrong, there's not a lot of space and time for you to get it right again. So it's one of those things where... It definitely seemed like there's a learning curve with the track this year, and the practices were pretty attrition-heavy. Yeah, uh, and you know, practices is the time when you're trying to find the limit, and to find it, sometimes you got to go over it. Um, but even for these these veterans, uh, Botas, Verstappen, and, and Vettel, um, they, uh, they went beyond. But that boded well for qualifying, having some people uh, on the back foot a little bit. Um, and even qualifying, we had some, some weird stuff happen. Raikkonen, uh, was blocked by Hamilton, uh, in Q1. And then Kofiat was blocked by Russell. Raikkonen advanced into, uh, Q2, but Kofiat, uh, did not advance. And Russell was actually handed a, uh, three place grid penalty. This is one of those, this is such a small track. It is a, yeah. in, so in qualifying, they're turning basically 64 second laps. And that's just not a lot of space to get a grid's worth of cars onto the track all at once. I felt bad for both Hamilton and for Russell to an extent where what happened with Hamilton does have to be penalized, but it is also very clear that 
Raikkonen just closed on him so quickly. Hamilton realized he was in the, in the way and made, it seemed to me, a perfectly reasonable move trying to scuttle out of the way. But it was also such an unexpected move where he drives like completely off the track that if you're if you're Raikkonen, you just have no idea what the hell is happening in front of you right there. So not a surprise that gets a penalty. Um, it sort of cast a shadow over the rest of Lewis's qualifying. With Russell and everybody, again, I was actually, one, really impressed that Kafiat reacted so quickly and smoothly. Like, he comes up on those cars, Russell in particular, at an incredible closing speed and just kind of flicks the wheel around and dodges them all. But it was one of those things where everybody is trying to gap themselves and get themselves a some clean running in the dying minutes of Q1. And, again, there's just not enough space on the track. Uh, it, the tricky thing, though, is it kind of feels like, what can you really do to penalize Williams right now? What, <laughs> what, what can you do that's going to be like, damn, that really, that really screws us for our results tomorrow? Yeah, I, I feel like the, the stewards had to have been adopting a, an attitude of, like, I really hate to do this to you, but you, 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 did, you did block him. Uh, I thought it was interesting in Q2, Hamilton complaining that we need to be around cars meaning that uh, they, Hamilton was not confident in his pace enough by himself. He wanted to be drafted by somebody else. Uh, so Mercedes not feeling too confident uh, going into Q2. Um, also not doing so hot in Q2, Sebastian Vettel. He goes out for a, uh, one run, banks a lap, but then does not go out for a second run. And in the interim... Between Q2 and Q3, which Vettel does advance to, the cameras stay on the pit, and there's a lot of commotion in there. Yeah, it. Um, once you saw them really pulling a lot of the cowling off the side pod of the engine, you knew things were not going well. Yeah, and there's like an FIA guy standing there to make sure everything's okay. Yeah, that was the thing. Initially, I thought maybe it was that maybe somehow they'd gotten in trouble again with the FIA and that the scrutineer was like causing yeah. a spot check, which would have been pretty brutal. I don't know if, I don't even know if the regulations allow that, right? Like I know that you can get unlucky with the Weybridge stuff as we've seen repeatedly this year, but I actually don't know if the scrutineers can basically, you know, pull you over <laughs> mid qualifying, but uh, you're probably just there to make sure that as they're messing around in the interior of the car, they're not violating anything. But, uh, I gather it was there was a fluid leak that they were that they were trying to pin down. Yeah, or like a an air air pressure some something some pressure in the engine was uh was not doing well. Um and he the problems continue into Q3 and Sebastian Vettel does not make it onto the track. Uh his teammate however sets a fantastic time on his first run. Um, that uh, no one can touch. And then Hamilton's second run doesn't beat it. Verstappen comes around, doesn't beat it. Botas comes around, doesn't beat it. Charles Leclerc on pole for Austria. Uh, and not only that, Verstappen slotting in at the end of qualifying into third place behind Hamilton. Then we got Botas, Magnussen, Norris, Raikkonen, Giovinazzi, Gasly, and Vettel uh, rounding out the top 10. Interestingly, uh, here, as we mentioned, Hamilton does get three places for impeding. However, 
because Magnuson, who's in fifth place, also gets a five-place penalty for a gearbox change, that moves Hamilton up to fourth because he basically vacates that spot. Uh, they tried to explain it before the race started, but I think it only proceeded to make it more confusing. But basically, Hamilton being penalized three places would have had him starting fifth behind Magnuson, but Magnuson then also had a penalty, so that moves Hamilton up to fourth. Uh, Russell, as we mentioned, got a penalty, so he'll be actually starting from the pit. Uh, Albon and Sainz are both starting from the back because they changed elements on their power unit. And... Leclerc is the only one of the top four starting on softs. So it's uh, Leclerc starting first, followed by Verstappen on mediums, Botas on mediums, Hamilton on mediums, and then the rest of the top ten is softs. So Norris in fifth, followed by Raikkonen, Giovinazzi starting seventh, then Gasly, Vettel, and Magnussen. So what do you what do you think of Ferrari's soft tire strategy here? Uh well, it's unfair to say now because we know we we know what, how it all played out. I mean, uh, what about um, did you notice during the race, like, oh, okay, I, they're trying to do this? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't until like, I noted I noted the soft tire uh, thing. I didn't realize how badly it would compromise their end of race pace. I think is you know what I mean. I thought I thought it would be one of those things that would hit them earlier. Um, but instead it ends up being a price they paid kind of on the back end of all this. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it was interesting to me that you had total wolf actually before the race, even basically I do love when team principals just feel free to just shoot the shit with the press. You, you want me to talk about yeah, this other team? Sure. I'll do that. Uh, total wolf <laughs> talking about. Boy, I don't know about the soft tire strategy. It seems like it's really... I don't get it. I don't see how you can make that work uh, in these conditions and at this track. It was uh, really hot out there, which is hard on the tires. Yeah, and it, the heat was a major fact- factor throughout this. And I don't know to what degree if Mercedes' pace was just due to the things that make the Mercedes good at other tracks make it vulnerable here. Possible. But it also did sound like they they referred to having opened up every single piece of bodywork they possibly could to cool that car off, and so that was that was another issue looming all, over all of this. Is it felt like this entire race was at or a little bit outside a lot of the tolerances that these things are spec'd out for. Um, it very much felt like the uh, you know climate change Grand Prix in some ways. <laughs> Well, it certainly boded well for uh, the viewers at the start because I, I'm looking at this going, all right, great, we're going to get this Leclerc Verstappen battle one and two. Got the Mercedes behind to keep them keep them honest. So here we go. Here's the start, and Verstappen immediately bogs it like the worst start maybe I have ever seen him do. Uh, Hamilton, who is right behind him, shoots around. And gets up next to Norris, who gets a great start. So on the grid, they're stacked, like, uh, one behind the other. Botas is behind the Claire, and then behind him is Norris, because they're all uh, starting on odd, you know, odd number positions. So Hamilton pulls even with Norris, uh, which is cool to see them fight back. In the end, I think Hamilton has more power and just muscles around him, but uh, some some cool wheel-to-wheel battle. And the thing, the cool thing about watching Norris, for me, was that 
he doesn't flinch. Like he's fighting with Lewis Hamilton and, uh, and, and, you know, holds his own pretty well for uh, a, a few corners at least. Yeah. The car in the end lets him down a bit. It can't, it, it can't win that race. Uh, but it was cool to see McLaren up there duking it out. Now, did Norris did Norris compromise himself uh, go, like battling with Hamilton so hard and open the door for Raikkonen? Because that's the thing that happens immediately after, right? Is yeah. he is running side by side with Hamilton, and then no sooner has he kind of lost the back end of Hamilton than Kimmy just sort of sweeps around and uh, picks him up on the outside of a turn pretty easily. Again, different power unit, right? This, these yeah. they're, they're running different engines. It could just come down to straight line speed. On the other hand, you know he was running off the racing line and not getting the draft on on Hamilton because obviously he was side by side with him. So was there a more pragmatic approach that he should have taken there? I, I don't know. Uh, it's it was it was exciting racing uh, t- to be sure, but it definitely set him up to lose not just the position with, uh, versus Hamilton, but also uh, concede one to Raikkonen. Uh, meanwhile, Vettel has made it up from ninth to sixth in just a few corners, uh, just behind uh, Norris and ahead of Pierre Gasly, who is ahead of Verstappen, now down in eighth after his terrible start. Not exactly what all those folks in the orange uh, with their smoke flares in the audience want to see. Uh, so... After this, I was like, all right, McLaren first, Botas, Hamilton. I've seen this before. I know how this ends. Uh, but then Leclerc started pulling away on his soft tires. So I'm thinking like, all right, he's he's going to have to put those hard tires on eventually, uh, is the thinking. And the other four will theoretically be able to last longer on the mediums. So their hard tires will be newer at the end of the race. But... Leclerc and Ferrari, you know, with the exception of Sebastian Vettel's engine problem, did look really well, look like they were doing really well in the rest of the weekend. So, and he did put it on pole. So I feel like if he's got enough pace to eke out enough of a lead and not get bogged down in traffic when he pits, he might not lose too much time to the rest uh, when they all go on to the hard tires. So it's all up in the air, uh, even though I would have loved to see him up there fighting with Verstappen at the start, still... Uh, you know, really excited for the for the rest of the race. Yeah, like I think we this is one of those things where F one is at its best when things are chaotic. To a degree, this becomes a classic because Verstappen stalls the car at the start. Which I don't know if that's on him or if it was also just he's sitting on the grid just long enough that uh, there was no way to keep the uh, stall protection from from a- the anti stall from from activating. But uh, having him. Like my suspicion is, the Red Bull had this track, and qualifying pace is whatever with the strategy. Uh, that I think if that hadn't happened, I, I could easily see Verstappen having sort of walked away with this race. And so I think we we kind of got so lucky in just the way this table was kind of flipped and turned on its head, uh, both with some odd results in qualifying, and then uh, Verstappen having this really catastrophic start that it ends up being uh, just one of those really exciting races where everything's kind of been uh, reshuffled and randomized. But yeah, I was expecting Leclerc to be able to pull out a really huge lead on the softs. 
I don't feel like that ever fully happened. Like I, I, I never saw the gaps open up between him and Botas uh, that really made it feel like he was completely driving off with the race. I feel like it maxed out around four or five seconds, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is, you know, it's a big gap, but it's not like, it's not what Lewis Hamilton does to people, no, right? Four or five seconds is a gap that means like you're being paced. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that is some, like you're, you, you've pulled out a lead and the other car is not going to try to press in on you. But yeah, that's not, that is, that is also a gap that also still means you're pretty vulnerable around the pit window. Uh, so that's that's the other thing is one of the yeah that Lewis Hamilton style of I'm just going to dominate this race I'm going to break you before the first stop where I am going to have such a delta uh, that I can basically park the car you know do a wing change sure why not uh, you know <laughs> get, grab a sandwich sure and then I'm gonna come out in first and that's that's roughly how it's gonna play out uh, that didn't quite work out for uh, Leclerc. But the Ferraris were showing some some good pace. Uh, again, like Vettel uh, got Norris pretty quickly, and Norris made him work for it, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, Which I, you know, like I said, the more I see a Norris, the more I like him. No, Norris seems Norris seems great. Uh, and also Verstappen, I I was starting to wonder if this is going to be a cursed race for him because so he runs up on Norris, mm-hmm. and he's also struggling to get him. But then we get this radio message that he's saying that he's got clipping and as a veteran podcaster uh i can say with some authority that clipping is not good you don't want clipping you don't want clipping that's that's something you gotta fix turn that gain down uh but the explanation of it was get a compressor on there yeah yeah and that's kind of it was kind of interesting the description of uh how the like uh, like i didn't totally follow um the explanation for what clipping is, but it's something about the uh, discharge and recovery rates off the battery uh, mm, that are okay. that's sort of falling out of whack. And when you've got clipping, basically it means that the settings you're using are leaving you without battery power at points in the lap, and the battery power isn't kicking on. And it's not like the old uh, Kerr's days where you push the button and you get that electric-assisted uh, burst of speed. That that Urs system speed boost is there every time you press the gas, and how much depends on the settings. But when it goes away completely, the F1 car becomes pretty uh, hobbled, right? Like these things, their their combustion engines do not put out enough power by themselves to have these things running at race pace. Uh, that's kind of the big difference. They need to be augmented by the, yeah. the motor. And this so, is something that like, I, I don't think they, they do. They really don't do anything to surface this to the television viewer. But um, I was actually just watching the video Danny put up for um, uh, Shift F1 patrons on patreon.com slash Shift F1 for the F1 2019 yes. game where they show the ERS usage and recovery on your like on-screen HUD, um, and it kind of illuminated to me how that just how that works in a, in a really easy to understand way. So basically, I mean, I, I'm uh, now based on what you're saying, it seems that like you know you're you're recovering energy in the braking zones with the kinetic energy recovery system that you know when the uh, rear of the car flashes, that's 
what's going on. And you could imagine the bar filling back up and then it's being depleted as you go around uh, the lap, right? And if your settings are too high, it gets depleted before you're at the end of the lap and you're just butting up against having no energy and just using the combustion engine. Yeah, and... So the interesting, the, the weird thing is, saying it's clipping makes me think it would be the opposite problem. And this, this is the funny thing: like Brundle's explanation is that there were places where he was put, he should have been putting down full power, and he just wasn't getting it off the battery. But the way I understand clipping makes me think that there were places where, he, because Brundle starts off by noting that clipping happens when the battery is showing full, and so I'm wondering wow. if there were also places. This is the this is the weird thing. It's something I want to look look into more. Like it, the sum effect was Max was like trying to get power from the engine and it wasn't being supplied. But it sounds like it may also just be an issue with maybe a sensor fault or something where like it's trying to charge up the battery, but the battery's full. And as we've seen, like when it is in harvesting mode, it slows the car down more aggressively uh, mm. as, oh, okay. it, as it consumes power. So again, this is the part where like I didn't totally follow what the exact problem that Verstappen was describing uh, how it works but also it's a good poll talking about F1 2019 because that game kind of vividly illustrates how much power management is part of racing now Uh, we can talk Mm -hmm. about that game in a bit but uh, and when the system falls out of whack the you're just you're just driving uh, kind of a car that's a shadow of itself, and so I was thinking, well, Verstappen's utterly screwed uh, if this keeps up. But happily, it sounds like it was a thing they were able to basically uh, hit some reset buttons in the uh, in the cockpit, and they do the whole like fail, you know, fail number, fail number, and basically I think somebody re- said control alt, delete. Yeah, the and they restart the system, and uh, it, it works like a charm. And then he's able to get, uh, then he's able to get Norris. I think in turn three, it's a, it's a really nice pass. Um, that happens, I think, around lap seven. Also around lap seven, uh, Haas unable to catch a break. We get news that Magnussen is under investigation for being out of position at the start. Right. And they run the tape and he, uh. he effectively misses his uh grid box. Um and there's that yellow line you're not supposed to roll past. He rolls well past it. Um and sort of racks up a penalty for that. And it looked to me so they ended up giving him a drive-through. It looks like they so th- that happened later. That happened like lap 12. He pitted, exited the pit and then got the drive-through appended to it and i'd have to look at the times i also didn't see him serve the drive-through so maybe maybe it was all handled in the pits but it didn't look like it um i think he came back around again after he pitted yeah which is that good are you better off serving are you better off serving five seconds parked in the pit box or a drive-through my understanding is the drive-through like the drive-through delta i think is still greater then five seconds it puts you off well, right because you could you could append the five seconds to a pit stop yes with a drive-through you're not allowed to do anything so you're basically you're just paying the entire speed limiter yeah 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 so uh that was a weird 
that that was weird how that entire thing played out. Uh, it seemed maybe they didn't actually think they were going to get a penalty, but it was very surprising to me uh, that they would pull him in when that issue was sort of was sort of looming. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I think they can't catch a break is a really really good way to characterize Haas's season so far. Um, uh, Verstappen keeps motoring and passes Raikkonen on lap nine. Uh, so he's quickly moving up the field, having rebooted his car. And Norris actually passes Raikkonen on uh, on the inside too, a few laps later. So uh, yeah. don't count him out either. Quick thing, yeah, they totally they totally had to double dip because uh, lap twelve is pit stop lap. He, uh, Magnussen turns a ninety second lap, and then lap fourteen he turns an eighty four second lap. So yeah. they. <sighs> Why do you do the? <laughs> you had the footage. You know they got you. Why not just just stay out there and we'll serve it all together? Um, that seems like a weird. Well, how would you serve it all together? When you come in for your regular pit stop, you can append it to like so. You do you do the you work can on the car. Append a drive through. Uh, so I think you can. I thought I thought the teams in the past had the option of taking it as a five second. Really? Yeah, because I feel like I've maybe maybe they changed the rules, um, but I definitely know that in the past you'd see teams pull somebody in to serve a penalty as part of a pit stop. Uh, sure, and I, so, I think that's my understanding was that that is only for time penalties. I didn't know you could convert a drive-through penalty to a time penalty and just append it to your existing pit stop. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's that's a good point. Maybe maybe that option wasn't on the table. Um, but you, otherwise, that's a really hard penalty uh, yeah. for 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 the mistake. And I have to look. Uh, yeah, I'll have to look up whether or not that's uh, allowed. But uh, I, I feel like in the past, I've definitely seen teams fold at least the time penalties into. Sure. Uh, that's the one where they're like hovering over the cars, waiting for the time yeah. to tick down, and then they do the pit stop, right? Yeah. Uh, so just kind of, there was no way anything was going to end happily uh, for Haas this weekend. But yeah, <laughs> no. just um, just just rough all around, really. Uh, back at the front, interestingly, Botas pits first, um, going from his medium tires to hards. Uh, Leclerc switches to hards one lap later. I think uh, responding to Botas's pit stop, uh, sealing his four second advantage over Botas and coming out in clear air. So. Um, he and Botas go on to hards effectively at the same time, and Leclerc still has that four-second advantage. Uh, Vettel also pits from um, a fantastic fourth place on lap 22, and they actually have to hold Botas for how close it is. Vettel, like, you know, races across him right as Botas is going to come out, and it's like, oh, man, here we go. Uh, it's going to be a great stop. We're going to get Vettel out. He's going to be right behind everybody, but horror of horrors... His tires aren't ready. This is the same thing that happened uh, to Daniel Ricardo at Monaco in 2016. It's not as bad. At least they're like coming out as Vettel arrives. But uh, boy, six six point one second stop, um, which I guess is you know not as bad as it could have been. But apparently the radio wasn't working for part of the team. Like half the garage didn't hear. Hey, Vettel's coming in. Get the tires ready. I think that's what they said. 
Uh, what did, what did you think when you saw this, Rob? Uh, I mean, I was kind of flabber like I was flabbergasted because it seemed like a masterstroke, right? Like that little, maybe none of that was intended, but that little way that the, the timing worked out to screw Botas and that would have uh, possibly like caused him to fall back in the order and maybe make him more vulnerable to uh, Vettel eventually catching him. Uh, all of it seemed very, very slick, uh, like like a very good strategy call, and then to have it all fall apart because the tires weren't ready is just kind of shocking to me. I guess, so the radio thing, you can't account for, I guess, a radio failure like that, but here's, here's the problem. Somebody told Vettel to come in, the radio worked as far as Vettel coming in, so the pit wall and the driver knew he was coming in, you can turn around and look from the pit wall <laughs> into your garage and see, like, hey, are things fucked up? And if things are fucked up, maybe you shout or you yell or you run across. Now, there are cars coming through. We are in the pit window. There are cars coming through. Um, maybe you can, may, you know, maybe at that moment you can't go scuttling across pit lane. But nevertheless, um, it feels like one of those things where. The car was coming in, and there weren't tires out. And there has to be a solution for that that doesn't rely on the radio, right? Like, this is all something that is basically in your in your pit area. Uh, that's got to be something you, 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 can, you can control. I, I just like imagining, you know, half of the garage sitting there going, Oh, what do you wonder what those guys are doing? <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's... Uh... Okay. Yeah, it's um, it's weird. <laughs> uh, about this time, Hamilton starts complaining about his front wing. And while we can't see anything on video, apparently there was uh, a crack in it. There are some big, big curbs around here, which can we just talk about this for a second? I like the fact that there are these gigantic concrete curbs around this track. Horner, uh, team principal, Christian Horner of Red Bull uh, was complaining that the curbs have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to his cars. Well, then don't go over the curbs. That's why they're yeah. there. Like this to me is exactly how we should be imposing track limits. Like you, you go over them, you damage your car. That's the risk you take. I, I, I think this is exactly how it should work. Yeah, I'm actually with you there, especially because so Brundle pointed this out that Hamilton appeared to be using the curb to kind of check the car's forward mom momentum heading into the turn and apply a bit of uh, sort of uh, apply a bit of like steering assistance because of the, the curve of the curb where he was kind of riding the car along the curb and using it to drift the drift the car around the corner a little bit at a slightly higher rate of speed. He was doing it consistently enough that like he clearly liked that line through the turn, which is awesome, by the way. Sure. That is a very cool thing to do. I can't imagine the skill and like feel for the car it takes to not only go over the curb, but to use it as a way to get a little bit more uh oversteer for, you know, into the car. Very cool. He also did pay the price there, which was that doing that repeatedly probably screwed up his wing and 
trashed his race pace. And that was kind of the end for Hamilton being having a shot at advancing within the, this race or overtaking Botas, which was so in the cards. Like, because of what happened oh, to yeah. Botas, where his stop, he got balked in the pits. Hamilton was turning great laps. It looked like uh, he he had a decent shot of, of getting Valtteri. And then the minute whatever happened to that wing uh, happened, he like, he could feel it immediately, even before his times dipped. You had Hamilton on the radio saying, "Nope, this doesn't feel right. I gotta, we got, we got to look at this wing." So it did pretty much put pay to Hamilton's hopes of extending his championship lead this weekend. But yeah, I, I think that is a perfectly fair trade-off. If yeah, you can go over the curbs for advantage. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Here's the cost. Yeah, it, it ended up costing him uh, uh, eleven seconds in the pits, which is. Frankly, pretty impressive for changing an entire front wing. Uh, lap 32, Gasly passes Raikkonen, which... he Gasly had been chasing Raikkonen for about 15 laps. Um, this race, not a great one for Gasly, and frankly, kind of highlighted for me the fact that he hasn't really done a lot of anything this year. Um... We'll get to more of that later, uh, but uh, lap 43, got an interesting battle between Norris ahead of Ricardo ahead of Gasly. So Norris gets a radio message, Lando, if you can, just hold Ricardo in your DRS. I thought this was really interesting because yeah. basically his pit wall is telling him, keep Ricardo about a second behind you so that he can use DRS but don't let him pass you because with Ricardo behind you, he is also impeding Gasly. So it's a cool strategy because if you can impede Gasly's race, that'll make it much harder for him to pass you. So um, I thought that was really cool. And Norris responds, you mean like forever? You want me to keep him there forever? It was, it was a cool idea. I also just don't, that also seemed like a crazy thing to suggest. Um, and like impossible for a driver to actually yeah, do. Yeah, well, exactly. It is impossible. It's an, it's, it's, it's an impossible request because there's two things we know about these cars. One is that visibility has always been terrible uh, out the mirrors. It, they, you just you can't see very well in the mirrors um, because they make the mirrors as small as possible to save on drag. Uh, if engineers could get away with having no mirrors and maybe going to like a spotter system, they probably would do that. Uh, the other part of this that just doesn't make this work is I don't think you can judge DRS range around a racing circuit because one second isn't a physical distance, it's a time distance. And that's going to change with where you are at different places in the circuit. So this idea that Norris is supposed to pace Ricardo and help him extend those tires via uh, DRS is like kind of a galaxy brain. Like it's like your theory crafting <laughs> on the internet being like, well, if you do this, actually you can prevent being overtaken. If you just use this guy's, but yeah, theoretically you could, I don't see any, I don't think Lewis Hamilton uh, could have, could have managed that. I'm not sure Ayrton Senna, 
uh, could have finally managed the interval that way. I just don't. It was it was a wild request to me. Uh, lap 50, as a result of Vettel's terrible stop uh, and Hamilton's front wing change. Verstappen, the guy who botched his start and was down in seventh place on lap two, passes Vettel for third. And the orange goes wild. Uh, Vettel then makes an interesting move here. I'm not sure I totally understand it. He pits at the end of that lap for the second time and goes onto soft tires from the hards. It's a, a little weird since he, in doing so, loses a place to Hamilton in that pit stop. But the thinking, I guess, is that Ferrari thinks that the hard tires that Hamilton has on are going to fall off a cliff and that Vettel, with his new soft tires, will be able to catch Hamilton by the end. So I thought that was a wild gamble uh and i <laughs> i love the fact that ferrari tried it uh however if that's true what does that say about leclerc's hard tires which are 10 laps older than verstappen who by the way lap 56 gets by botas for second place which is such a clean move well botas never put up a fight like he knew this was done uh, the Mercedes never had the pace this weekend to to fight that out. Uh, for Valtteri, it's it's one of those situations where there's a lot of ways this can go wrong. But in the meantime, you are leading Lewis Hamilton. You are going to eat into his championship lead this weekend. Are you really going to? It's Max. Are you really <laughs> yeah. going to go like? Uh, knives out with him in a faster car uh, and on a more advantageous strategy at this juncture. So I, I thought Valtteri is very uh, pragmatic. Also, I got to shout out uh, Cro- David Croft just kind of goes places during the commentary during this. <laughs> I quote, and this is not uh, like I wrote this out by hand, so I, you know I'm paraphrasing a very little bit, but think of this race Think of this race like an accordion, ladies and gentlemen. We have opened it wide and are slamming it shut to make some sweet music. <laughs> uh, and his, his point here was that the field was compressing uh, at the end. We have some good racing action. But um, it was a very good, slightly... What's the way to put it? kind of a fever dream of a <laughs> commentary line. It was just hilarious that uh, that's where he he ended up he ended up going. But yeah, Verstappen was just uh, on an incredible pace and Leclerc was clearly in race maintenance mode and it becomes one of those things and it, it starts getting a little awkward too because there's this notion that um well Leclerc is desperately trying to cut through traffic to just put up obstacles uh, between him and Verstappen, who's going to be more more bogged down by traffic. And it's at this point where there's briefly an idea, hey, maybe Pierre can do something. <laughs> maybe maybe Gasly can help and like slow Leclerc up, and that's how he can contribute as he's getting lapped, as he's getting lapped in the Red Bull that's currently on pace to, to theoretically win this race. Uh, so, again, it was one of those, the indignities of uh, Gasly's position right now. And it obviously that doesn't that doesn't work. That you, If he had tried anything like that, it probably would have uh, looked 
been looked upon pretty dimly by the stewards and there might have been repercussions. So he ends up not being able to do anything to uh, impede Leclerc. But it doesn't really matter. Like Verstappen is trying to get through traffic and he has to slow down a little bit. But then they just have this incredible duel in the last mm-hmm. like seven, eight laps of the race. Um, and it was some of the best racing we've seen in in ages uh, because Leclerc is clearly slower overall, but he has some of the straight line speed advantage uh, that Ferrari has. But this is a track where cornering speed is pretty much everything. And so they go side by side through, uh, what is it, turn three? Mm-hmm. Where they're they're going side by side and it looks like Verstappen has him and they come out side by side and then that straight line speed of the Ferrari kind of pulls him ahead and he's able to hold on to the position and they have to go all the way back around. And this brings us to, I guess, what is the controversy of the weekend? Uh, Max pulls the same move, but he does it differently this time. And rather than cut the inside line and leave an outside line through the turn, he begins on the inside line and takes a fast sweeping line through the corner that closes the outside line completely and forces Leclerc off the track, over the curb and off the track. And Leclerc, uh, sort of side by side, tries to sort of reassert himself and turns in on Max and bangs wheels with him briefly and then has to back out. And at that point it's done. Um, You know, he's been sort of checked by that move and having to run off and he just watches Max disappear. Uh, What did you make of it? I, I think I'm, I'm landing the same way that I am on the, the curb thing of you want to do that go ahead. Like that's a dangerous thing to make contact with another car. You don't know if you're going to earn a puncture or what, uh, or, you know, crack off your front wing. To me, it didn't look, it didn't look nefarious in any way on Max's part. Uh, and it just looked like that's, that's what racing looks like. So I, I had no problem with it at all. Uh, the, the both drivers complain about it. Of course, Verstappen saying he turned in on me, which his engineer immediately responds with mate. There was nothing wrong with that, <laughs> which I really liked. Um, but we do hear that the stewards are investigating it, which I guess spoilers, nothing happens. They don't issue a penalty, but no. I remember thinking just like at this point, if someone gets a penalty for that, I don't even think I would have been mad. I would just, I don't know. There would have been more information into honestly. a puddle. No, uh, so like, there's a couple things. One, I never, I never would have expected that the passing of Charlie Whiting would be so noticeable on a week to week basis as far as what F1 feels like right now. Uh, clearly. Charlie Whiting had a moral authority, but also just a way of kind of guiding some decisions around the way F1 races are administered. And under him, you didn't have quite as many controversies like this. What seems to be the approach adopted by Michael Massey has been to be a little more interventionist 
but also try to be a little more transparent about the reasoning. But they've also then boxed themselves in because they're also trying to establish kind of a jurisprudential uh, like precedence of decisions. And so this felt like they were a little bit boxed in because, hey, if you're going to look at the Montreal decision and pass down a ruling that changes the race results on that, don't you also at least have to look at what happened here? And so they do. And they have to sign off on this race result. Now, if they had if they had said that move was beyond the pale, I would have it would have been frustrating. But I, where I where I mean that it would have been more information is that clearly at that point they're trying to redefine how racing action looks on the track, where they are moving from a more permissive idea of what are, what is a racing incident to hey, you actually have an obligation to leave drivers a path through a corner and you can't just shut the door on people as drivers have historically done. And I could actually see that being a decent policy in the end, right? Because like right now in F1 in the corners, defenders advantage is so comprehensive, right? Like if you get a lead into a corner, uh, there is so much you can do to, close the door to make your car as wide as possible. And that's on top of the advantages you generally have with, um, you know, screwing up the pursuing cars handling. The flip side is uh, DRS maybe gives a trivializing advantage uh, to anyone with a, with a better engine. And if a track has long straight and a, a good DRS zone, it also maybe gives an attacker's advantage too much. But if they, if they had changed the ruling, I would have looked at it and thought, oh, they just completely want to change what, what racing looks like on the track. Mm-hmm. They want, they want like consistent wheel-to-wheel action. They don't want people running each other off the road, which would be an interesting, like, it'd be an interesting like, framework for F1 to adopt where, no, this whole like, slamming the door thing that we've been talking about for 30 40 years that's done like once you've taken a line you're basically obligated to be like a slot car and then we can figure out what line everyone's going to be in when you come to the next corner that would have been that's an interesting direction for the sport to go it could be something to consider for the future but under the uh rules we got right now what max did was was fine and actually i think in, in any construction what max did was fine because i think the difference between the two incidents the Leclerc later said, well, he let us go side by side the first time around that corner, and there was room for two cars. The second time, he runs me off the road, and that's kind of the breach. Leclerc was in a less good position this time. That's the thing. is like Verstappen had just more speed going to the corner. He had a decent nose on Leclerc, and Leclerc was trying to battle back into the outside line. But he had lost the corner, and I like that's ultimately why I think Max was able to shut the door is because at this point Leclerc was basically on the other side of it. Yeah, uh, I think that's kind of been the the thinking of the stewards at least. Uh, I have the quotes here from collected by racefans.net, uh, kind of comparing this incident with two others. Um, so first of all, they're their initial uh, ruling was 
Um, car 33, which is Verstappen, sought to overtake car 16, which is Leclerc, at turn three on lap 69 by outbreaking car 16. When doing so, car 33 was alongside, I'm just going to say, when doing so, Verstappen was alongside Leclerc at the on the entry of the corner and was in full control of the car while attempting the overtaking move on the inside of Leclerc. However, both Verstappen and Leclerc proceeded to negotiate the corner alongside each other, but there was clearly insufficient space for both cars to do so. Shortly after the late apex, while exiting the corner, there was contact between the two cars. In the totality of the circumstances, we do not consider that either driver was wholly or predominantly to blame for the incident. We consider this is a racing incident. So, uh, Michael Massey, the FIA race director, is not apparently not involved with decisions here, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, he's kind of watching out for like you know yellow flag situations and safety cars and whatever. The stewards are the ones that issue these penalties. He indicated uh, in regards to a 2016 Rosberg and Hamilton case uh, at the same spot, uh, same turn, Massey indicated a key difference between Verstappen and Rosberg's driving in the incidents that Rosberg appeared to be looking across toward Hamilton to force him off track. Rosberg did end up earning a penalty for this. Quote, probably the big difference from what I've seen from the footage is that I've seen of the two was that Nico looked across on that occasion, whereas Max is very much focusing on the corner and getting out of it as quickly as possible. So I think he's saying that there's a pretty clear intent that Max mm. is just trying to, you know, take the corner at that and not run anybody off the road. Even though you could you could think that, like, back before he's made the turn, I'm going to put my car here, and if he doesn't want to crash, he'll have to get out of the way. Regarding the difference between this and the Vettel incident in Canada where he came back on the track and uh, blocked Hamilton, Massey says, I think the rules for us are clear. A collision has been created and Leclerc has been pushed off the track. However, Massey pointed out the two incidents are not comparable as Vettel, unlike Verstappen, had gone off the circuit. Quote, Sebastian went off the grass, was in front. It wasn't an overtaking maneuver. Uh, And then he talks about the same race, Daniel and um, uh, Lando. The one with Daniel, and particularly with Rand- Lando, was very much a, a, uh, as part of Daniel going off the track and rejoining, whereas this here was both cars were on the track. It was an overtaking maneuver. Trying to compare the three of them, they are three very different incidents, so from that end, it was an overtaking maneuver, and the stewards rightly pointed out, in their view, it was a racing incident, and it was one of those, it was just good hard racing from the perspective that they saw. So, um, we actually, I'm going to jump down to emails here. Dennis writes in and says, I wonder how good the English commentary is because the Dutch commentary managed to explain quite clearly how the stewards work. Charlie Whiting's successor sees something happen, uh, often with censors telling him something went off, someone went off or something. He then refers this to the stewards, who then go into a database of the last handful of years showing similar incidents and what the decision was. This results in fairly consistent judging. I would agree with Vettel, that there should be way less penalties, but they aren't inconsistent. Uh, that's interesting. I would, you know, again, I would love to know more about how all this stuff works, but that's uh, some interesting insight. Yeah, that is. So, what I could never make out was the degree to which, um, in a lot of the commentary I saw, the idea was it was still kind of Charlie Whiting's show. 
And so when you saw something on track, they'd be like, ah, Charlie's not going to like that. And there was kind of a, like, Charlie wasn't handing down the rulings, but he was exercising a lot of, like, judgment. Uh, you know, sort of what people talk about George Washington, you know, like just having sort of a influence uh, on the people around him. So I, I do kind of wonder about that. There's an awful lot that gets referred uh, now to stewards, though teams are also very quick to go running uh, to the stewards as well. Um, but that is an interesting, that's an interesting methodology, uh, they use. I do wonder, I don't know. It feels to me like things have been like, if you compare things from different eras, they feel inconsistent, but of late in general, it feels like things are pretty, uh, pretty consistent. Uh, all right, let's move along from that because we still have a few more laps to go. By the way, Vettel at this point has caught Hamilton up with those new tires and on lap 70 passes him with DRS, no problemo. So Ferrari's strategy there with the two-stop working in their favor. Uh, I thought that was awesome. Uh, but yes, the winner on the day is for Stappen. Uh, I, again, I, I feel for Leclerc because I like him, but this to me, this is it. This is the stuff. This is what we want to see. Uh, this race was fantastic. In my opinion, uh, Honda's first win in 27 years. And I don't know if you saw the podium ceremony, but, uh, you know, one of the one of the Honda guys was up there on the podium holding up the constructor's trophy and just tears in his eyes. Uh, Such such a great image. Uh, Even Zach Brown on Twitter said congratulations to Honda for their success at the Austrian Grand Prix today. Good for the company and good for F1. Elsewhere in the field, again, Gasly got lapped. <laughs> uh, Giovinazzi scored a point, which was very exciting. And although we didn't see a whole lot of him, Signs started 19th with that power unit penalty and finished in 8th. Also, he had front wing damage, and he was thinking that he could have even gotten 6th place. So, as, as someone who joined the sport uh, or started watching the sport in around the, on the downslope of McLaren. Yeah. Seeing this resurgence is, is really, really cool. Uh, but let's just run down the race result here. Max Verstappen first place also gets the fastest lap point. Charles Leclerc in second and Valtteri Bottas rounding out the podium. Sebastian Vettel in fourth. Uh, followed by Lewis Hamilton in fifth. Then we've got Norris in sixth, Gasly in seventh, Sainz in eighth, Raikkonen in ninth, and his teammate Antonio Giovinazzi bringing home the point uh, in tenth place. Behind them, we've got Perez, Ricardo, Hulkenberg, Stroll, Albon, Grosjean, Kvyat, Russell, Magnussen, and driver of the day, Robert Kubica. Was there ever any doubt? A uh, huge day for Kubits to watch. Uh, shout out to all the Kubitsans out there. Um, we did it, fam. <laughs> I was wondering why they didn't show it on screen. They usually show at the end of the race, driver of the day. They didn't show it this time. I had to I had to go look at the website and confirm that, indeed, Robert Kubitsa earned driver of the day. Uh, apparently, I'll just jump to this now. Uh, a headline from racefans.net F1 investigating technical fault after Kubica is voted driver of the day uh, Formula 1 spokesperson confirmed to race fans that they encountered quote a technical problem which is currently under investigation 
sometimes you see the internet rally behind, uh, you know, the driver in last place to just, you know, name a boat, Bodie mm-hmm. McBoatface or something. Uh, but this turned out to be a technical fault. Formula One has since uh, fixed the problem, and Verstappen ended up winning driver of the day with 74% of the vote. Uh, driver standings, as they look now, Loomis Hamilton still on top with 197. Valtteri Botas closing the gap a little bit. Uh, now, what is that? 31 points behind at 166. Max Verstappen, 126. Sebastian Vettel in fourth with 123. Max uh Three points ahead in that third spot. In fifth place, Charles Leclerc with 105. Gasly's got 43. Signs with 30. Norris has 22. Kimi Raikkonen close behind with 21. Ricardo and Hulkenberg teammates tied at 16 points for 10th place. Magnussen's got 14. Perez has 13. Kvyat's got 10. Albon in 15th place with 7 points. Schroll's got 6. Grosjean's got 2. Giovinazzi has 1 point. And then uh, two Williams boys was zero. I'm curious. Like, Giovinazzi is improving, like, notably. Mm-hmm. And I am just really curious to see what his ceiling is. Because the introdu- the reintroduction to the sport he had was pretty rough. He was rusty. Uh, Raikkonen was kind of blowing the doors off him. Now that doesn't quite look the case. Um, I'm curious how much more ceiling he has. And uh, like how far he can he can get, uh, it's it's tough. I think it's so much of this is about timing when you enter and and who's around you. Like I think, for instance, I look at like signs a little bit, and I think he's a, he's a terrific driver. But I think he's also in that awkward. I think Hulkenberg found himself in this valley too, where like Hulkenberg came into the sport. He's very good, but there were a lot of really established, superb veterans who were just like locking out the top teams. And Hulkenberg never really got his shot with those teams. And that seems to have been the story of his career, right? Because when those when those options came up uh, for changing of the guard, they weren't going to guys uh, like, uh, like, like Hulkenberg. And I look at the signs and I wonder if, this, if something similar is going to happen, right? Where he's clearly got some, uh, you know, he's clearly got some game, but at the same time, Right there, his teammate, like Norris, is a slightly more compelling and exciting figure because he's new and he's uh, showing some really precocious ability. So I'm curious, like guys like Signs, uh, or even like a rookie in kind of an awkward spot like Giovinazzi, I'm curious where they find themselves in a sport where seats are so few and far between, and like all the top teams seem to alternate between wanting a sure thing and a hot young thing. Yeah, I think Perez uh, kind of in a similar spot too. And he he actually, they interviewed him recently on um, F1 Beyond the Grid, their uh, official podcast. It was it was interesting because I, I, I think I caught the end of his season at McLaren where he replaced Lewis Hamilton. Um, and he describes it, Perez does, as a, a pretty tumultuous time at the team. So that was his one chance to shine and it didn't really work out. And so he went to, did he go straight to force India from there? I think he did. Um, and just like kind of those other guys, he hasn't not languished, but I think he's excelled, uh, at, at the current team he's at. Um, but you're right. He hasn't, he's one that hasn't really managed to light things up. Um, but you know, having said that, I really, 
like all the guys you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and, and they're guys that I, number one, hope that they get a, a, a shot to show what they got. And number two, I think that all of those guys are supremely talented and probably could. If you just plopped them in a Mercedes, I think they'd do really well. I mean, Botas is kind of the guy that did get that shot, right? Yeah. Um, and although he personally, I think, showed a lot of promise in his Williams car. Yes, um, that's the thing. So, yeah, yeah, like he like he had those memorable duels with Raikkonen in in Williams. Uh, so I think it was one of those things where uh, Bottas I think was a very easy decision to promote. Uh, mm-hmm. He also was he was also very lucky in that he was driving for Williams at a time when it was easier to get a seat there, but the car was at least comparable to the stuff around him. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I you know I am curious what opportunities await those guys, and who knows maybe there's maybe there will be more opportunities to get racing seats in the near future than uh, we maybe think. Perhaps. Uh, let's go down to constructors standings here. Mercedes uh, still on the commanding lead with 363 points. Ferrari in second with 228. Red Bull in third with 169. Back down in fourth place, we got McLaren with 52 points. Renault has 32. Alfa Romeo with 22. Racing points got 19. Scuderia Toro Rosso has 17, and Gene Haas and team have 16 points. Williams still bringing up the uh-oh. Uh, last bit of items from the post-race fallout. Mercedes admitted that they were slow because of cooling issues. As you mentioned, Rob, uh, Total Wolf team principal said that the team anticipated the problem before they arrived in Austria. Quote, we knew that it was our Achilles heel and we were carrying the problem since the beginning of the season. We tried to work on mitigating the performance loss, but at the end, it was really painful to watch them cruising and not being able to defend or attack. Uh, All right. Should we take it to the news, Rob? Absolutely. You just want to go down uh, the order here? Yeah, because I think you might be more read up on the... uh, So what's this I see about my world maybe not being... They're a race sponsor. The founder Uh, of the feast, to quote uh, Charles Dickens. (laughs) The uh, let's see. The official name of this race was the Formula One My World Grosser Price von Österreich 2019. Um, reporter Hazel Southwell, uh, who does a lot of Formula E reporting for Drive Tribe, RaceFans.net, and Jalopnik, um, looked into My World, and uh, I'm just going to read from her her Twitter feed here, um, which is a, a, a thread on her investigations. I see the Austrian Grand Prix, sponsored last year by definitely 100% real company iTime, are once again sponsored by a very famous company that has no reason to edit their logo into stock photos. Oh, surprise, they're registered to the same address, which is used by many, reads smudge writing on hand, highly legitimate businesses as iTime. Mm. This is their accounts for 2017. Pro tip, do not base your highly legitimate business in the UK where this is public. So my world is indeed iTime, um, which she goes on to explain. It costs about 6 million euros to sponsor a Grand Prix. If you were wondering, here's last year's thread for what it's worth. The iTime app never turned out to be, a, never turned out to be mining crypto. It just did nothing at all. So uh, we could jump back into iTime. For a second, they were accused of being a renamed company uh, that did pyramid schemes. 
the app, it's labeled under communication and has 10,000 downloads, a 4.8 star rating, but doesn't seem to actually do anything. A lot of reviews saying this is a communications app, but you can't actually send messages. It looks like the app just mines as much data from your phone as possible. There's a screenshot uh, of it asking for permissions for your in-app purchases, device and app history, identity, contacts, location, SMS history, phone calls, photos, media, files, camera, uh, microphone, Wi-Fi connection information, Bluetooth connection information, and device ID and call information. So I think it might just be something that parades as a social app that just mines all of your personal data for marketing purposes. So... Yeah, go ahead and sponsor a Formula One Grand Prix. Sounds like yeah. a great, a great, great company. She points some. She, she posted some uh, balance sheets for this company. Man, they're not good. <laughs> this is not good. Uh, yeah, 2017, they just made uh, a quarter million pounds in investments, and that's apparently all they did. And then their net profit on the year was whatever. Was the two grand in appreciation of those assets, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, based on the initial investment, and that appears to have been their only activity. Yeah, that's um that's weird. It is it is a strange capital in F one uh continues to be a bit puzzling. And uh speaking of which, I guess we might as well just skip ahead here to we were gonna leave rich energy, uh <laughs> You know, on the shelf for a while, we were going to stop dunking on them. But it looks like so they lost uh, they lost their appeal in the white bikes infringement case, and they have until later this month to stop using the logo in its entirety. Uh, that interestingly, that that deadline is right after the British Grand Prix, so maybe they'll still be running the same. Uh, logo at that race but but who knows but the really funny thing is that apparently there's now a court order uh i guess stemming from this lawsuit that they have to open their books and disclose their actual investment in f1 and the relationship to the haas team i'm very curious (laughs) as long as the check's clear right yeah, I mean, it's clearly becoming more available. Uh, you know, our Jeff Gersman was on Twitter the other night uh, trying to buy a case of it from uh, one of those premium vendors that Rich Energy only targets, uh, Walmart.com. So it's I, I'm genuinely very curious uh, wh- what happens next with this case. I wonder what their books look like. Because so much of this has been strange. And there are indications now they are trying to stand up a real operation around this. But then there are other parts of this that feel so sketchy. I am just so curious what uh, their balance sheets reveal about where their money comes from, uh, what the company actually does, and what are they putting in to Haas? What are they getting out? This I would love to know. Uh Speaking of bad actors being shown the door, uh-huh. I guess. Uh, so 
I mentioned this driver a little bit earlier this year after uh, getting some, getting real high on some IndyCar racing. Uh, Patricio Award, mm-hmm. who was one of the more impressive and exciting drivers in IndyCar this year, has kind of been bouncing around racing formats this year, and he just signed on with the Red Bull uh, driver development program. And I think he's entering Super Formula, replacing a rider, a reader, a a racer they just parted ways with, uh, Dan Tictum, who apparently has been both kind of an undisciplined mess on the track and then a bit of a disaster off the track as far as the things he says, uh, the way he says them. Apparently, he tried to start some beef with Mick Schumacher. (laughs) So just not not a beloved figure and not somebody that won much respect on any front. I I kind of see him mentioned in the same sentences as Santino Ferrucci, which is uh, not flattering. Right. So uh, Award is now in at Red Bull. And there is... So Award's made no... Award is very open about what his ambitions are. He is trying to get an F1 as quickly as possible. And... Based on what we saw in IndyCar, he may have the talent to do it. Now, we've seen a lot of good IndyCar drivers like try to make that jump, and it's harder than it looks. It's a different, it's just a different beast. At the same time, the Red Bull Driver Development Program is really good. Uh, it's been really successful, and they do give their guys shots. This isn't like uh, Ferrari or Mercedes where you know, you're developed up to a point where you're basically unemployable. And then you're put on ice uh, while the marquee drivers, uh, you know, spend the rest of their careers in the prime seats. So I am curious whether or not he's going to be the real deal and whether he can, first of all, how he does at, in, uh, in lower, lower formats, because apparently he's been off to a bit of a rough start. But where might he come in? Because the other thing looming over this is is Red Bull's driver lineup completely set for the, for for this year and for next like how committed is Red Bull to the lineup they have right now uh cuz I feel like maybe things don't look good for Gasly what do you think uh I don't think things look good for Gasly at all um I would probably the the thing about promoting like knee jerk reaction is put Albon in there he looks great uh but the thing is they you know, one could argue that they promoted Gasly too early uh, and that he's kind of buckling under that pressure. Um, maybe Albon needs another year in the oven uh, to really rise to the occasion um, for that seat. Kvyat's got experience at, uh, at the top of Red Bull. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, maybe just to... to um, an addendum to that Patricio Award stuff. He did a race recently in Formula Two, um, his very first after one Mahavir Ragunathan uh, was penalized three times in the same race after violating the virtual safety car times uh, and banned for one race. So Pato Award hopped in. Uh, it didn't do so hot, although, again, it was his first race in Formula 2. And as Danny discovered in his uh, video for the Shift F1 Patreon, um, in F1 2019, he drove the Formula 2 cars and had a hard time. Apparently, they're they're pretty tough to do. So, um, But yeah, uh, I, I've heard a lot of talk about uh, Mr. Award and um, wish him the best. 
Well, and the thing for uh, Red Bull in particular is, so in the wake of this race, we get Horner saying that we need to somehow control alt delete uh, Gasly and just going sort around. of clear his head. And it's one of those weird things where it's a public statement of confidence and we know you can do it. But also if they're giving public statements of confidence and a vote of confidence like that, that definitely means you need to get your act together or it is going to be moving day. Uh, this notion that we, you know, we know you have the talent and we just need to fix whatever it is that is causing you to drive badly. Uh, once we get that cleared up, we're confident you'll be a good driver. But the unspoken message in that is you're not good enough right now and season is young enough that a swap would make sense right um i don't think kafiat gets the nod i think kafiat is still damaged goods a little bit and he just needs to he needs to prove himself more at tarasa whereas i think albin probably if you wanted to give someone a shot you might give you might give that shot to Albin, uh, even though maybe it is rushing things a little bit. Um, the question is then, would you send Gasly down to Tara Rosso, or would you rush a ward into a spot? <laughs> uh, I mean, that, the long ball. Yeah, like I feel uh, that's probably what I'd do. Like, I, I feel like maybe I've seen enough of Gasly. Because this isn't like one of those flameouts where where Kafiat showed so much promise, but was also making catastrophic mistakes. Right. This is there's not many highs, and the lows are low. Yeah, it's something that um, I, I could imagine a driver not wanting to, you know, take a lot of risks in his first season. Uh, and kind yeah. of drive carefully. Norris has said that the, that's kind of what he's doing. He just wants to bring the car home every time. Um, but that he plans on turning it up a, a notch once he, you know, has got a season under his belt. Uh, I think that's really smart. Yeah, but you're right. Like Gasly just, he just continues to be this middling, mediocre, just nothing. Uh, like we don't see him hardly at all, except when he's getting passed or, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I really feel for, drivers in general because it's a hard sport and it was i was totally gutted for kvyat when they bumped him back down but i don't know i just uh i think if max wasn't doing as well as he is they would be scrambling a little more yeah well if max wasn't doing as well as he he is maybe things wouldn't look quite so dire for gasly like That's this could too. be one of those flukish situations where Max is so good that effectively he gives you a categorically better car than you've actually built. You know, there's some drivers who do that, and there's sort of a distortion field to cast around themselves uh, because they have that kind of ability. I don't know that I, I don't know that I fully buy it here. Um, we've seen Max competitive with with other good drivers. He's he's a great driver. He's not uh, some sort of uh, you know Superman out there. So yeah, I, I think it's it's Gasly's in a tough spot. I would not be surprised. Here's the thing. I think British Grand Prix is critical for him because we we're approaching the midseason break. And if you were gonna make big changes, what better time to yeah. than to make make a change at the break or immediately after, you know? Clear mm-hmm. your head, we'll see what happens. 
and then you get you get a shot. But then there's, you know, what ten more races left? Eleven? There's quite a few. Uh, there's plenty of time to get something else done with this season and run a different experiment. Yeah, you're right. I think if Red Bull was not in their solid third position, uh, then things might be a little more, uh, you know, tumultuous. But I mean, if if someone was pulling in the same kind of points that Max was, maybe they'd be up there fighting for second with Ferrari. Anything else from news? Uh, just a funny detail here. Ferrari put a motion forward to bring back the 28 tires and get off these 2019 tires that a lot of teams have been complaining about the move. Uh, so it was the, a five, five vote basically among the teams and Ferrari blew up about it and said they were uh, ashamed that the other teams would vote this down because it does need to be carried with a super majority to alter tire regs at this point. And uh, you know, it, the move didn't work out. I don't know how critically Ferrari needs the, uh, the the tire regs to change. Certainly, I think Haas almost certainly was praying that that motion would carry. Uh, but it just it's it's funny to me that like we're pretty deep into the season and there's still some pretty heated politics about whether or not we can maybe make the season a little more equitable if we just go back to last year's tires. <laughs> uh, I, I was it last race that they pointed out. Uh, the tires this year are much thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not. Uh, oh boy, how do I describe this? The part that touches the track that is thinner this year, and I think that um changed the way. Like Mercedes had to do a lot of uh, alteration because uh, they were, I think, he- the t- these tires now heat up faster because there's just less rubber to be heated. Um, but it's something that yeah, Haas is uh. Uh, struggling with so i could see them being on the the vote to change um okay we got uh our fantasy league standings here if you'd like to join the fantasy league please uh check the show notes for the invite code in 10th place bro to the future part three followed by ninth uh or I, i'm sorry behind ninth place dragon ball gt then we've got fry the tires in eighth seventh place is speed beast sixth place pointless racing force fifth place mercedes all the way uh, fourth place, the Hamiltons break the system. Steer- <laughs> steering wheel, hey, hey, give it to me. Move, come on, is in third place. Second place is Maka F1. And jumping to first place, Alpha Emojis. It's close up there. We got 16, 36, 34, 32. That's for the top three. Uh, I, however, uh, am languishing down in 669th place. Perez, I had him on my team. Didn't really... Do so hot last race. Uh, Raikkonen gave me 18 points. He was the turbo driver. Racing point, though, was my is my uh, constructor. And I just ditched them for McLaren because McLaren's cheap. I don't know why racing point is so expensive, but McLaren uh, you can get for a mere $7 million. Uh, let's take it to the emails. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter like Bridget did. Uh, we were talking last week about racing board games, and she says, Hey, Shift F1 podcast on the subject of board games. Look at this adorable game I just found for my kids. I'll report back when we've given it a test drive. And it is called Monza. And there's a red car winning the race <laughs> on the cover. Like any good board game, this appears to be made in Germany. 
On your marks, get set, go in Monza small racing cars. Round the racetrack, but not with big engines. Instead, what counts is tactics and a little luck with the dice. Whose racing car will be first to cross the finish line? Look out, the obstacles need skillful negotiation. A turbulent car race for two to six players, ages five and older, which helps develop strategic thinking. Uh, so Bridget says, update. My oldest is almost three, so still a little young for it and uh, working on turn taking. I simplified it a bit and it held his attention for a solid 10 minutes. He mostly liked pretending to race the cars. Uh, still super fun. Definitely pick it up for your little girl, Danny. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised at how many uh, board game themed or racing themed board games there are out there. Uh, it's nice to see some of them are good too. Uh, also, Manuel Andres one on Twitter replies and said, uh, "I used to play that loads when I was a kid. It's quite fun, I must say." So there's two votes for Monza, which we I'll try to find a link to that in the uh, in the show notes as well. This email here from Dennis we mentioned a little bit um, uh, earlier in the show talking about the how the stewards work, but Dennis is responding to something that we brought up last race in regards to the French GP um, and the officiating. And I was kind of wondering for, I I needed some perspective about other times of racing. Uh, And we, we pointed to the Japanese Grand Prix 2007 where um, Massa and Kubica had that awesome back and forth. Do you want to read this a little bit, Rob? Sure. I'm current. So this is from, uh, yeah, from Dennis. I'm currently listening to your podcast, Review of France and Preview of Austria 2019, and I wanted to note something about the Japanese Grand Prix of 2007 you guys touched upon. For reference, it's the race where Masa and Kubica were going off track a whole lot while fighting. First of all, I find that fight horrible. It's not good racing, especially when Masa just floored it through the last corner, uh, driving at much higher speed than Kubica over the tarmac runoff, allowing him to clear Kubica easily on the straight. In my memory, that was the last lap, therefore he finished ahead of Kubica that way, so it was quite unfair in my opinion. But like you guys said, it was hardly proof of a time when racing was better. We had just gotten out of the Schumacher-Ferrari dominance era and were heading towards the Vettel Red Bull dominance era. DRS was implemented just a few years later because overtaking was too hard, and Pirelli was asked to make fast, degrading tires to emulate Canada 2007, where Sato passed Alonso's McLaren in a Super Aguri in 2012 as well. All of this is to say it wasn't exactly the pinnacle of good racing. On top of that, stewarding was very inconsistent, especially in 2008, resulting in calls for change, resulting in the current system with a former driver as steward and a smaller pool of recurring stewards. Dennis gives us that little bit of detail about how officiating works these days. You guys also talked about the VAR and how it changes the outcome of games. It reminds me of 1994 when there was a new system to measure jump starts by more accurate, way more accurately, resulting in a lot of 10-second stop-and-go penalties, a standard penalty at that time. It often takes a little while for everyone to get adjusted to the new situation, and then people behave like they should and find new ways to circumvent the rules. Yours sincerely, Dennis. Yeah, I think this this was helpful for me to kind of get uh, some perspective on the fact that everyone has been complaining about Formula One all the time. And I kind of agree with what then it says at, at the end here that it just takes time for everyone to get adjusted to the new situation. As you mentioned before, Rob, you know, we got a new race director. Things are changing for 2020 and 2021. Yeah, I... I, I 
I think I'm going into races now just trying to temper my temper my temper a little bit when it comes to these steward decisions. So I don't know. What do you, what do you make of this email? I think it's good. Like this basically is kind of my position that, uh, you know, we've in this case it's true. We've actually always been at war with, uh, you know, formula one, uh, officiating and rules regimes. So I think the, uh, search for what actually can generate a good sport, uh, reliably over time continues, I'm also just not sure that it exists. Like, I think there is, there are so many things inherent to F1 that cause, uh, you know, six, positive feedback loops where success breeds success. Uh, I think, you know, Chain Bear posted a video about this a few months, like a couple months ago, getting into this issue more. But like F1, just the way it's set up, uh, is designed for people to kind of run away with things. It rewards that. And a lot of other, a lot of other racing series have gone in a direction where you try to mix up the field to generate slightly more exciting and uh, fair outcomes. So it's, it's in a weird place. I think F1 is kind of vestigial from a period when it was the cutting edge of racing and the engineering questions they were answering were interesting. I'm not sure they're doing that anymore. You know, like I think urge systems are really impressive and uh, they do point a way forward for, a lot of a lot of technologies, but a lot of that is being done by car manufacturers, either in endurance racing or just in their own road testing. So Formula One is kind of still has this identity, like it's on the very cutting edge of what racing is going to be, um, and so they reward it as kind of an engineering challenge on that way. But increasingly, people are watching it for spectacle, and that's the thing. It's always been a little bit inconsistent at producing. Uh, Let's see. We got another email here from uh, Philip Defner about all the tuning and adjustments uh, drivers are doing during the race. Uh, Drew, you want to read this one? Sure. Uh, Philip says, hey, I just finished watching the amazing Austrian race, which almost uh, was almost getting a bit offended when you called my country's Grand Prix boring in the last episode uh, and was wondering how much adjustments are usually made during the race. Sky interviewed Christian Horner, and he's saying something along the lines of, he, Verstappen, uh, is such a cool operator now, working with engineers throughout the race, tuning the car. How does this actually work? Can they remotely tweak some things, or are they just giving input like flip this switch, etc., to the driver? Thanks. So, this is what like I don't I don't know. I think clearly there are a lot of software settings that they can tweak via the steering wheel, but a lot of times they are being told to change mode specifically because they are the operator of the car. And so, for instance, whatever was happening to Max's car with uh, his energy deployment system was not an issue that could be fixed from the pits. They couldn't send commands to the car. Which is illegal. And have the situation resolve itself. Yeah, I actually looked this up. The car can give telemetry to the pit wall, but it can't go the other way. The pit wall cannot give the car commands. I think the only thing they can send is like voice, you know, to the driver's radio. Uh, in the regulations, it says the driver must drive the car, quote, alone and unaided. What that means is not really defined. Uh, so I've got to imagine that that means like no one can control things on the car but the driver. So that would, again, eliminate yeah. things like tuning the car from the pits. But um, in terms of physical things that they do do during pit stops, sometimes you'll see them 
take like an Allen wrench uh, and turn a um, a bolt on the front wing, and that adjusts um, downforce settings. They can sometimes do it in a pit stop really, really quickly. More often, you see that uh, during qualifying, where they bring them back into the garage. The driver says, like, I need more front wing, so they give it a couple turns on the, the Allen key. But yeah, on Mercedes, it's really easy to see because their their front wing is, you know, silver and it's outlined by a fluorescent green circle. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But yeah, I don't I don't think you it is. I don't think it's legal to for the team to send uh, any kind of command to the car. Interesting. So, yeah, which means that there's an awful lot of uh, this kind of software adjustment that the drivers have to do via those really intricate steering wheels. And so I think to a degree, it's not necessarily like they're there doing a lot of car tuning themselves, but they do have to be capable to execute some, because it's a weird interface, right? It's not like it's not like the cockpit of like a passenger jet where there's a switch that does the one thing, and you touch that switch and you've interfaced with that system. Mm-hmm. It looks like with the steering wheel, it's one of those interfaces that like has multiple layers you can go through and multiple like settings you can adjust so that what you do on that steering wheel can change, like like a little bit of video game controller, really there are a surprising number of commands and things that you can do through that steering wheel uh, that wouldn't just be one button press that would be a little bit more involved. And so they have to know how to do all of that stuff. And more importantly, they have to be able to do it without losing time. And so this is something that I'm, I'm sort of getting back into F1 2019 right now. And even using the ridiculously simplified interface that is a video game controller. When you are whipping around a track at high speed and you realize, oh, I'm actually uh, generating more power than I'm deploying in, in the car, so I need to increase my deployment rate. That's multiple button presses. That's like just that is time you are spending adjusting things in the car and not fully paying attention to the racing. And that's harrowing enough. And that's in the simplified-ass version of an F1 car that you're driving in Shift F1. Uh, These guys have to be doing way more than that, uh, doing it for real, and probably on a slightly less convenient interface than a game controller. So I I do think there's there's a high degree of sort of skill and multitasking that a modern F1 driver has to do uh, that you wouldn't, that wouldn't immediately be apparent. Speaking of the uh, skill of modern Formula One drivers, did you see this email from Matt? Subject, Formula 1.75. Okay. If you thought Formula 1.25 wasn't exciting enough, wait till you hear about Formula 1.75. So if you're just joining us for the various 1.5, 1.25 formulas, uh, Reddit subreddits are devoted to... Formula, I think the first one was Formula 1.5, which basically ignores, uh, it, it pretends the first three teams did not exist, Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari, and treats the rest of the field like it's Formula 1. Uh, Formula 1.25 is uh, a league that is just Pierre Gasly. Rob, what are you looking at? I'm looking at Formula 1.75, which, which is the 
Matt says Williams Racing League. It is it is a subreddit dedicated to the highly competitive backmarkers that comprise the Williams team, complete with news and high quality graphics. Well, high quality is an interpretation. Uh, there's some, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good MS Paint uh, graphics for oh how the how how those crazy Williams boys are doing. Uh, not well, but it does look like Russell is dominating uh, Formula One point seven five, and uh, you know Claire Williams is there's a there's a post here. Congratulations to Claire Williams for such a dominating performance by her team. Eight one two finishes with zero DNFs from Williams. Uh, post from two days ago. Another amazing one too. Seriously, how are they doing that? It's like they're racing in a different league. Good times. Good times. Well, uh, if you'd like to send us any other cynical subreddits, please follow us on Twitter at, at @shiftf1podcast. Uh, I am at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, that's it for the information around the internet. But let's talk about the racing that is going on around the world, everyone. NASCAR Xfinity Series is at Daytona for the Coca-Cola Firecracker 250. Uh, the W Series is in uh, Germany at the Norris Ring along with DTM for both of their round fours. Supercars is at the Townsville Street Circuit, which is maybe my favorite place uh, name of any place ever. Uh, for the Watt Pack Townsville 400. Wonder what that is. Uh, World Superbike is at Donington Circuit in uh, the United Kingdom. The IMSA WeatherTech Championship is at the Canadian Tire Motorsports Park uh, for its round seven. MotoGP is at the Saxon Ring for the HJC Helmets Motorrad Grand Prix Deutschland. Uh, MXGP is in Palembang for the MXGP of Indonesia. The NHRA is racing this weekend at uh, the New England Dragway in Epping, New Hampshire for the New England Nationals. The FIA World Rallycross Championship is in Holjes Motorstadion in Sweden for the World Rallycross of Sweden. And NASCAR. We're also at Daytona for the Coke Zero Sugar 400 or the Coke Zero Sugar 400. What? Not really sure how to read that. The Coke Zero. Oh, the Coke Zero Sugar, sugar 400. 400. Okay. Seems a little odd to me. They're calling it the Sugar 400 when Coke Zero ain't supposed to have sugar, but uh, what do I know? I'm just a simple NASCAR. Just a humble NASCAR with big dreams of going around this mighty track several hundred times if you'd like until to, we're all released from this. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash shift F1. Again, Danny uh, just posted the uh, video of uh, F1 2019. He goes through um, uh, the Formula 2 stuff in there that does uh, some classic race stuff. Um, and of course... Uh, Gets a gets a look at um, uh, what I think is a really sharp looking game under the lights in Bahrain. Uh, so yeah, if you'd like to check that out and all the other weird bonus content we've um, got going up there, we just we posted uh, uh, the first chunk of our Drive to Survive stuff recently, uh, and uh, this month we'll have another podcast breaking down the uh, the middle three 
episodes of uh, that Netflix series. So yeah, patreon.com slash shift F1 if you want to get in on that. We just passed 600 patrons, which is incredible. Uh, I feel like, Rob, there is a point. We might get to 1,000 and we'll have to actually race on a real <laughs> a real track, uh, which is our current goal for 1,000 patrons. Oh, I'm training. I'm uh, getting ready. I got to get my wheel out. We will be back next week for the pre-race for Britain. Uh, But until then, have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Zoom.